There's a wonderful anecdote in the book where Harry decides to take Meghan to Botswana on, I think, their third date. And William Riley points out when Harry says she's the one, she's the one, he, he points out that actually this is the fourth person you've taken to Botswana. Love the British monarchy. You've come to the right place. Welcome to the To Die For Daily podcast with Kinsey Schofield. Take it away, Kinsey. Hi, all. I know it's been a minute and I am so appreciative of the kind feedback about the podcast. Um, Wow. I mean, we have been mentioned since we launched a few months ago in Cosmopolitan Magazine, Marie Claire, InStyle, the Daily Mail. So I am just so, so, so grateful and excited that you like the show. Thank you so much for listening. Um, to give you a quick update on my life and all things to die for daily, Scandalous Diana Killing of a Princess is now available to stream on Fox Nation. Now, this is a three-part docuseries on the life and death of Princess Diana, and they really get into the chaos surrounding her death at the time. And the series features me, Kenzie Schofield, Andrew Morton, who you know I love, Ingrid Seward, Arthur Edwards, Ken Worf, and Richard K. That's just to name a few because there are a lot of familiar faces in the docuseries. But um, in case you're curious, here's a preview. Everything stopped around the time of the royal wedding and the whole country came together. And that was the power of royalty. But it was also the power of this young woman, you know, not yet 21 years old, Lady Diana Spencer, now the Princess of Wales, what she was able to bring and the royal family knew they had an absolute diamond in their midst, as did the country. And it almost gave it a clean slate because for a second, everybody's heart was in the same place and love was the focus. And everybody just kind of, now all of a sudden they're rooting for Prince Charles and Princess Diana and what's next. Okay, it was the music for me. I cried. Again, Diana, Killing of a Princess is now available to stream on Fox Nation. It's about three hours long, and I really enjoyed the experience. This is probably an overshare. But what initially connected me to Diana was her sense of loneliness. And it was something that I could relate to. And I used to watch documentaries about her alone in my studio apartment in Los Angeles. And I would just ache for her because I felt connected to her in this way. So to have the opportunity to help tell her story was really, really special to me. And I'm forever grateful. Another quick update R is for Revenge Dress, which is my upcoming Princess Diana book published by Post Hill Press and distributed by Simon & Schuster is available for pre-order on Amazon now. It will hit your local bookstores on November 15th. And I am so excited for Santa Claus to bring you a copy. All you have to do is search Amazon for R is for Revenge Dress and pre-orders are good. So thank you to everybody that's already ordered a copy. Last but not least, I land in London June 1st for the Platinum Jubilee. Tell me your favorite fish and chip spot, the most Instagrammable hotel lobbies. And I mean, who to place my bets on Derby Day. Hopefully I come back with some super good royal tea for you, but I am so excited to get back to London post-pandemic. All right, to the good stuff. For over two years, I've talked with more than 120 people, many intimately involved with senior royals since Diana died. The Palace Papers will change the way you see the House of Windsor, their falls from grace, their resurrections, their survival. Above all, you'll get a closer understanding of the woman who matters more than anyone else, Her Majesty, the Queen. 
Full disclosure, I tried to get Tina Brown on the podcast and was ghosted. I, I like to visualize her in like a Regency themed room with Robert Lacey just ignoring my calls, hitting ignore. It's okay. I'm not bitter. Uh, but obviously this episode is going to be a bit of a different format. Okay. It took me a while to finish her new book, The Palace Papers, Inside the House of Windsor, The Truth and the Turmoil. I ordered it on Audible and it was 18 glorious hours of castle cattiness. It very well could have been titled The Mountbatten-Windsor Encyclopedia of Scandals almost instantly. And this is how I knew that I was going to like the tone because this makes a lot of sense to me. Almost instantly, Tina draws this line between royalty and celebrity, giving us an idea of the trouble to come for the Sussexes. Listen to what she tells PBS. They seem to be unable to understand that the real problem that couldn't be overcome was their desire to both keep all of their royal privileges, patronages, etc., while also having this whole commercial arm where they were able to make money. And it just would not have worked because ultimately whatever they were doing commercially, they were leveraging their yeah. HRH, his, you know, their Royal yeah. Highness yeah. titles. And it just could not work. And so a choice had to be made. I mean, they had, they, you know, faced with the choice between the Commonwealth and Netflix. I mean, they took they Netflix. Took Netflix. So she kicks off the book with this idea, and, I, and I'm paraphrasing, but Brown says that royalty is eternal, while celebrity is fleeting and requires a constant and very likely exhausting hustle. But most important, celebrity requires success. You know, constant, constant wins. <laughs> I enjoyed the book. Um, I could have done without everything Prince Andrew and Jeffrey Epstein related. I'm much more interested in Fergie, but unfortunately, she has become nothing more than a toe-sucking scandal in the footnote of royal history. Ultimately, that's got to be infuriating if you're in her shoes, but obviously she wasn't wearing them when they were in that guy's mouth, so... I do have a suggested audible hack. If you do like audiobooks the way I do, I actually sped it up by one because the audio felt just a little slow to me, but the content is so juicy. If I'm being honest with you, the best stuff to me is at the back. I primarily enjoyed her chapters on Megan and Harry, of course. She said in one interview that that was the toughest dirt to get. Everything else, though, it kind of felt regurgitated, especially if you're a royal watcher or if you read a lot of these books. You're kind of turning the page going, I know this story. I know that story. And are we still calling Camilla a horse face? I mean, this is a Princess Diana podcast, but yikes. <laughs> Brown is actually um, pretty blunt about Prince Harry and Meghan Markle's inconsistencies, which is something that I did not anticipate. And she, dare I say, bravely went head to head with Sussex secret share Gail King on CBS this morning a few weeks ago. You know, she memorably told, told Oprah I didn't do any research. And my question was, you know, in her working life, all the people I spoke to in her acting life and her, you know, when she was a, you know, a, a TV star, they all said she was so good at preparation, you know, that right. she was somebody who was asked for director's notes, who boned up the night before, who was highly organized about her material. It's very odd to me that, you know, for the biggest role of her life, namely becoming a member of the royal family and a royal duchess, that she says she did no research. Mm. I think had she done so, <laughs> she might have, you know, had Not a few question marks about what this life was going to be. Sure. I really don't think she understood what it was like to be in, uh, married to, in fact, the sixth in line to the throne. 
King's rebuttal, in case you're curious, was to quote Megan's ITV interview. I never thought this would be easy, but I thought it would be fair. Okay, but back to number six. Okay, rewind. Uh, this is something new that I learned about Megan, and I am absolutely fascinated by this comparison. Tina has a chapter entitled Number Six on the Call Sheet, Megan Markle's World, where she explains Megan's ambition and organized strategy to climb her way to the top, not only to the top of her call sheet, but to the top of celebrity in general, pop culture. The number six seems to haunt Megan as it allegedly bothered her to be number six on the suits call sheet. That's a production schedule. And then bothered her that her husband was number six in line for the throne. She saw the perks that the people at the top got and she wanted them too. I think we all came to the conclusion that Harry and Meghan did not appreciate being treated differently or not being a priority to the men in gray suits in the palace. But Tina's backstory about Meghan and the call sheet gives us a better understanding of Meghan's mindset. When Megan wanted something, she schemed for it. She wanted a driver in Toronto. She got it. She found out who she needed to butter up. She did that. But these same techniques did not work with the firm because there is a system in place that is set in steel. And, it, you know, I, I think we have this conversation almost every podcast, but Megan thought they could force the palace's hand and the palace called their bluff. To me, they're, to have these examples of her having goals, successfully accomplishing them, how did she successfully accomplish them? It was interesting to have some of that backstory there. I appreciated that about the palace papers. In an interview with Time Magazine, Tina discussed Meghan's discomfort for having to rely on Prince Harry for finances, saying, I think that's what Meghan disliked most about being married to Harry. This is a person who earned a living age 21, and now she's totally dependent upon a man who really is completely dependent on his family. So again, we get the sense that she's a fixer and took it upon herself to change their circumstances. But wait, I'm not blaming Megan for everything. And Tina goes more into that in a second. Hold on, not blaming Megan. Tina tells the Washington Post that Prince Harry probably was not upfront about their financial situation. I mean, in fairness, I'm sure that Harry minimized the financial predicament they were going to find themselves in. I mean, hardly, you know, it's unlikely that a man is going to say to her, look, hey, you know, you're not going to have half the things you think you're going to get as a sort of fairy story princess. I cannot relate to this as my fiance tells me pretty regularly that I have a very unrealistic expectation of my lifestyle. The author is so savage in her evaluation of the Sussex's status post-Megxit, telling the Washington Post. Completely underestimated uh, what it was going to be like to be without the, the you know, the, the, the palace platform. Um, however much they hated, and they really did, I think, at that point, the constraints and the sort of uh, pettiness, essentially, they conceived of the palace, uh, you know, and the advisors. Try doing it without the palace and the advisors, right? Because what the palace does, of course, it's an amazing convening, uh, has amazing convening power. There's no one who wants to take a phone call if they say Buckingham Palace on the phone, Kensington Palace on the phone. So there's a huge convening power. Every major invitation in the world comes through that conduit. And the private secretaries could just sift and say, what about you appear at this? Well, why don't you do this appearance? And all of that's now gone. And essentially, they have to just hire PRs to do that for him. And their judgment is not necessarily the best judgment that they should be listening to, because, of course, you know, the, they're, they're trying to leverage whatever they say, the royal brand. And there's no PR that really knows how to do that better than Buckingham or Kensington Palace, right? 
So that suddenly without this, this leverage. Now this is an excellent point because it does seem like the rare appearances made by the Sussexes are projects that their PR firm are directly related to or invested in, like the NAACP awards. But why are they not at um, the White House Correspondence Dinner? Why are they not at the Met Gala? I think we know the real reason why they're not at those places. But to reiterate what Ms. Brown said, their judgment is not necessarily the best judgment, the PR firm, or playing devil's advocate here, maybe Harry and Meghan are just insanely stubborn and not taking the direction that they've been given. I think both options are highly likely. As if. So after 120 interviews and talking to all these people that Meghan's worked with and knows, Tina gets the sense that Meghan is struggling behind the scenes to define herself. Here's what she told the Washington Post. Meghan doesn't really have a brand, is the truth. And she sort of, you feel that she is sort of grasping somewhat at, uh, you know, whatever is the kind of um, Twitter caring of the moment. You know, it's, 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 you know, vaccinations, it's Ukraine, it's women's rights, it's, hey, my 40th birthday, let's have a mentoring scheme. Nothing is really going anywhere for Meghan. And then there is the question of the whole entertainment deals that they did. And I think that more savvy advisors, if they had thought about it, could tell them the whole problem with entertainment deals is that you have to deliver hits. <laughs> I posted about this on todiefordaily.com recently, but I would really like to see Megan bring the TIG back because she obviously excelled at that. I think it allows her the freedom to share with the importance of controlling how much. Archie's favorite art project, Lily's favorite snack. These are tidbits that would keep the press and fans happy without revealing too much of herself. She loves cooking. She loves entertaining. She could easily turn these passions into entertaining programming. But was her core audience and fan base going to watch a cartoon? I highly doubt that. While most royal commentators like to highlight Meghan's similarities to Princess Diana, Tina explored their biggest difference with talk show host Lorraine. She saw the palaces, she saw Diana as this huge, you know, global humanitarian superstar. Yeah. But maybe actually forgot that, you know, for 16, 17 years, Diana worked like a dog, you know, inside the royal family, doing a great deal of very, you know, humdrum assignments, essentially. It was her incredible charisma she brought to that job that made her so extraordinarily special. Mm -hmm. And actually, Diana was always a change agent from within. I mean, she didn't leave the royal family because she said, you know, I'm out. No. She got divorced. Um, her husband wasn't in love with her. That was the major problem for Diana. Of course. And that was her kind of the agony for her. And uh, she made the, the greatest thing she could out of it. She took that suffering and turned it into, sort of sublimated it you know, into her uh, remarkable work that she did, uh, which was really real and, and, and important. I said what I said, As and always. I'm not changing on it, okay? Ron praises Prince Harry for Invictus Games and encourages him to continue to pursue success in that arena, but she does admit that his behavior has disrupted the House of Windsor, telling Sky News. Diana's destabilization was because she became bigger almost mm. than the institution, which was something that he'd never encountered before. Harry was, I think, the real uh, kind of unsettling surprise. In a way, Harry has sort of continued his mother's legacy, essentially, of throwing hand grenades. Mm. And I think that's what they found so destabilizing about Harry is they don't quite know when another one of the, the guns is going to go off. I would argue that not everything can be blamed on his Spencer blood. Just look at his godfather. 
Buckingham Palace has announced that Prince Andrew is returning his royal and military titles to the Queen. Harry's disruptive behavior has obviously caused friction between him and his family, his brother specifically. But Tina thinks too much blame has been put on Meghan Markle. In her defense, she told CBS this morning. It's really been sort of unraveling since really a couple of years before Meghan came on the before. scene. Before? See, yes. that's what's interesting. Yeah, she, ha she has been, I think, unfairly overblamed for it, mm. actually, because it was starting to go sideways when Harry came out of the army after 10 years, and suddenly, you know, he was there. He was like this charismatic number two. He wanted big assignments. He wanted to be out there on the public stage and realized, you know, sort of for the first time seriously that his brother, his path had diverged. He's now the future king. They're no longer Diana's boys. How crushing is that line? They're no longer Diana's boys. Tina reveals in the book that a lot of the hurt between Prince Harry and Prince William was based on both men being passionate about similar causes. While it seems rather juvenile, if Prince Harry was already resentful of his role, then I do imagine showing up with your glossiest smile to promote a charity that you're not personally invested in might feel like pulling teeth. She calls the current relationship between Prince Harry and Prince William non-existent. Also in her interview with Time Magazine, Ms. Brown discussed Harry's conflict with loathing the press versus courting them at Invictus Games or with his upcoming book. She tells Time, I'm told that is most puzzling to the royal family themselves at the moment. Apparently, what they say about Harry is we don't recognize him. Essentially, this conflict between wanting no press to being someone who can't seem to stop talking. You know, she's on. She's on great form. We always. She's always got a great sense of humor uh, with me, and I'm just making sure that she's, you know, protected and got the, the right people around. Well, you. What? Tina doesn't name the quote-unquote royal racist in her book, and when asked about it in interviews, claims she doesn't know. I don't know if I believe her. 120 interviews and three years, and someone didn't give you the answer to the biggest mystery since who shot Jr. Surprisingly. Both William and Catherine come out seemingly unscathed in the palace papers. Tina believes that they are a very valuable asset to the monarchy. Here's what she told the Washington Post about the Cambridges. Frankly, the House of Windsor is extremely lucky to have William as the older son, really. And even more lucky that he decided to marry a daughter from, you know, of a middle class family who turns out to be absolutely flawless in her learning of training for an adoption of the role of the future queen. Um, he is uh, composed, uh, you know, he's judicious, uh, careful, uh, not as sexy, of course, as, as, as the much more turbulent and charismatic Harry, but thank God Harry isn't going to be, isn't the first son, because, you know, it, it's a job that involves doing a lot of very dull things a lot of the time. And William has never shirked that, actually. I could not agree more. I love Prince William, his discipline, his kindness, his compassion, his big heart. Um, I think he'll make an incredible king. I would, I'll, I'll fight anybody that disagrees with me. Although I don't necessarily agree with the narrative that Catherine's courtship with a young Prince William was as premeditated as the book makes it sound. And I certainly don't believe that Carol Middleton is this scheming Chris Jenner character that was working behind the scenes to secure royal association. Um, I like to believe that everything fell into place the way it was supposed to because that was God's plan. Okay. Another point Brown makes that I disagree with in the book is um, that Diana 
did not regret her Martin Bashir interview. I don't know. This is such a tough call because we know what we know now. And, and Diana went to her grave not having all this information. But I do believe had she known how disgustingly dishonest he had been to secure that interview, that she would have popped her top. Here was this journalist lying about all of these people around the princess, basically accusing them of doing the exact same thing he was doing to her. It's unimaginable. So I do. I disagree. I think that if Diana knew, she would regret that interview. When it comes to the future of the monarchy, Tina believes it's indestructible. However, she tells Sky News. We are at a perilous moment, I think, in this particular, this particular time, because a lot of the uh, dramas of the last 25 years I wrote about were somehow the, the queen at the center was always this still center of, of composure. In the storm. In the storm. She was always going to sort of pull it together and pull it out. Mm. The difference now, of course, is we have a very frail queen in the last twilight years of her life. Mm. And there won't be her as the composure at the center to pull the institution around and keep on representing it with the same kind of gravitas. I think personally that the British people will actually rally to Charles because, uh, you know, th there's, there's a desire, I think, for this institution to continue. I too would rally around to King Charles because thanks to Tina Brown's book, I now know his choice of toilet paper and it sounds divine. Kleenex Velvet Laboratory Tissue, welcome to my loo. The Palace Papers is a pretty critical but fair assessment of the Mountbatten-Windsor monarchy, and while sources tell us that Prince Charles and Prince William had a hand in navigating Prince Andrew's exit from royal life, it will be interesting to see how Prince Charles handles future scandal without our stoic queen. She is the heart of the family. She is why we are so easy to forgive and forget. What happens when she's no longer here? Will we keep calm and carry on? Only time will tell. Thank you so much for listening to my lonely mini episode of the To Die For Daily podcast. Um, I know it's not the normal format. I will get back to the normal format. I just really wanted to talk to Tina and, and I did not get that chance. But special thanks to Andrew Morton, Christopher Anderson, and Tom Quinn for actually responding to my request for interviews. <laughs> I love them. They're very, they're very nice gentlemen. I can't wait to give you all my Jubilee gossip. And if you made it this far, I'm so grateful for you. Thank you so much for hanging in there and listening to the To Die For Daily podcast. Thank you for listening to the To Die For Daily podcast with Kinsey Schofield. A transcript of this chat is available at todiefordaily.com. Please subscribe to hear more from your favorite royal commentators. Cheers.